You're listening to the Writing Wall Podcast, and I'm your host, Stacey Hawks. Every second and fourth Saturday of the month, I will be here at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and many other platforms. This podcast is designed for indie authors to have a platform to share their books, their poetry, and their stories. We also feature well-known and traditional writers that are from my home state of North Carolina, while also featuring local writers from my backyard right here in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Allegheny County. You can connect with us on Twitter at The Writing Wall or on Instagram at WritingsOnTheWall85 and grab our links there to our website so that you can keep up with what's happening with our monthly newsletter. Newsletters go out the first of every month and you can also sign up to follow us on the Wix app because everyone has a story. We want to hear yours. What is your story? Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Writing Wall podcast this Saturday. I'm here with our Writer of the Week and Ippy winner, Susan Beckham Zarenda. Susan's debut novel, Bells for Eli, has won praise, even having one reviewer saying that it will remind readers of Pat Conroy's rich storytelling. It's vivid and beautiful, and the book will capture the hearts of those who love the South, and in particular, South Carolina. Susan, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Stacy. I am so happy to be here and honored that you asked me to be your Writer of the Week on the Writing Wall. Share with listeners a little about yourself and your book, Bells for Eli. I live in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I have been ever since I went to college. I went to Converse College in Spartanburg, but I grew up in the small town of Lancaster, South Carolina. In the 60s and 70s, that was, you know, when I came of age, and Bells for Eli is a southern literary novel that is set in a small town in the South, in South Carolina, actually. I named the town fictitiously Green Branch. And it takes place in the 60s and 70s, a time that I know well, although I ended up having to do a lot more research than I thought I would do. Green Branch is completely fictitious, but it, I think, picks up on bits and pieces of a lot of small towns in the South that I've known. What can you tell listeners about this amazing story and what inspired you to write it? The story is inspired by an accident, actually, that happened to a first cousin of mine. His name, he's not living now. His name was Danny. And he swallowed Red Devil Live from a Coca-Cola bottle on his second birthday. His father had been using the chemical mixed with vinegar, makes helium, to blow up balloons and I think he was putting the balloons over the neck of the Coca-Cola bottle to inflate them and he negligently left the chemical in the bottle and my cousin survived the accident but of course his life was changed by that and I in creating my character Eli the title character I wanted to examine how one misstep very early in life can change the trajectory, not all bad, but it can change the trajectory, not only of that life, but of the lives of those around that person. And Eli has a first cousin, Delia, Adeline Green, she's called Delia, and he's Eli or Ellison Winfield, and they grow up across the street from each other, but they are not, they become really just 
close beyond reason, an unconditional love, not just because they live across the street, but really in large part because of Eli's accident. Because the accident leaves him with a metal trach in his throat and a strange string behind his ear that comes through his nose. It's actually to be hooked to a dilator to keep his esophagus from closing, but you know, kids don't know that. He has a hole in his stomach when he's a little boy through which he's fed and he doesn't smell very good. So he's mocked for his frailty and his weakness and his disfigurement. And so Delia becomes his only friend and his protector and his defender. And it is, you know, a remarkable really relationship that they develop and takes you through their college years. So when they're teenagers, Eli's outer disfigurement is gone. He emerges as this charismatic, handsome young man. He really bursts into adolescence. He's a risk taker and he does fall into the drug culture and Delia continues to try to make him okay. And at the same time, he now becomes sort of her protector in adolescent years. And it's just a tremendous bond and conflict between these two cousins. When they are teenagers, they are sexual beings. And what do they do with these incredible feelings they had in childhood. They don't just go away. And so that's something they have to fight. That's something that they know that's taboo and they can't engage in that kind of relationship, but it is a conflict for them. And anyway, that might be more than you wanted to know, but that's the main storyline. There's a big mystery subplot in the book as well. So far, it is a very good read. I've been reading Bells for Eli, and I just want to say congratulations on your Ippy win this summer too. What was it like to receive the Ippy, and who was the first person you told? Now there's a good question. It was very exciting. Well, I was almost kind of stunned. The book had won some finalists. Um, it was a Ford Indie finalist, an American Book Festival finalist, a number of four or five independent book award finalists. And so when I got the email telling me that I'd won first place in the best first book of fiction, I think I just stared at it for a minute. But I was thrilled. I mean, I was thrilled and I was awful proud of Bells for Eli. And I think the first person I told was probably my agent. I'm not absolutely positive, but I think I emailed her right away and told her. And then of course I told my husband and he was very excited for the book and it went from there. Were there any traditions, experiences, or even books that helped you to write Bells for Eli? Well, my cousin's accident, I think, inspired me to write the story. Though the book is 95% fiction, that instance that kicks off the book happened with my cousin. The kernel for the novel was a short story that's titled Law's Passage, and it won the South Carolina Fiction Prize a lot of years ago now. And then it was chosen for the best of the South Carolina fiction because that prize ran for about 20-something years. And so a few of the stories were anthologized. And I always wanted to go back and think about how the character in the short story's name is Law. And uh, you wouldn't want to read the story before you read the novel because the story is somewhat like the end of the novel. But I wanted to examine how did Law get into the crisis that he was. And I, I wanted to, I went back, I went back to think about how life got to the point where Law was and thought about my cousin Danny. And I thought about what had happened to him. And so these things just sort of came together. And as far as, you know, what taught me to write, I mean, I have a undergraduate and graduate degree in English, but I really think I learned to write fiction from teaching English. I think all I've taught for 33 years 
And I think all of the literature I analyzed, all of the literature I studied, that I discussed with my students, I just think over time, good literature just kind of went into my system, if that makes sense. Now, I wrote short fiction all through my, you know, adult life. And, you know, I wrote a lot of short stories and they won some prizes, but I just never felt like I could write a long work until after I retired from teaching and I was raising children and taking care of aging parents. I'm just not a superwoman, so I couldn't do it. But that story lived inside me. And I think I accrued more and more knowledge about writing as, as I went along. You launched your book, Bells for Eli, amid COVID-19 back in March 2020. How has the pandemic shaped the way you promote your book, and what was the hardest part? Well, the hardest part is being the mature age that I am means that I, well, I don't know, I guess there are a lot of people my age who know a whole lot about technology, but I'm not one of them. I'm much more of a traditionalist. And when we had set up, Publicist and I had set up about 50 events in eight states with the hardback version of the book when it came out in March 2020, and I was on tour for one week in Southwest Florida. I'd gone to the Southwest Florida Reading Festival, and then I had gone to some bookstores and a book club or two down there. And the pandemic, you know, as the week went on, everybody was getting more and more nervous. And by the time I flew home, I had an event in Charlotte, North Carolina with the WNBA, and they expected maybe 75 to 100 people. They had invited three authors to speak, and I think there were 15. And so there was the handwriting on the wall, so to speak. No pun intended. And after that, that was it for the live events. So I got busy and did some writing. I offered writing workshops through bookstores. I started doing Zoom events with book clubs. I did podcasts like I am happily doing now. I did the Reader Meet Writer that SEBA did. Southern Independent Booksellers Association offered the opportunity for a Zoom speaking and it went out to various independent bookstores in the Southeast and then their customers could watch it. So there were all kinds of things like that and I am very grateful, but I still believe there is nothing like an author getting to meet his or her readers face-to-face. Absolutely not, and no argument here. It is a very special thing to have a writer event or especially a book launch. Talk to us a little bit about your book launch and what that looked like during COVID. Was it live or was it a virtual event? I did not do a launch live. I actually, that was actually my last live event. I was able to have my hometown launch on, I believe it was March 12th, maybe. And I was able to have my launch here in Spartanburg live. And a lot of, about 150 brave people came out to support me and the book. And we had this wonderful sign, like with psychedelic peace sign from the, you know, a friend of mine drew, like we used to use in the 60s that said, hugs, not handshakes, (laughs) or peace signs. Peace signs, no hugs and handshakes. That's what it said, something like that. So I was really fortunate to get to have that and to get to connect with my friends here in Spartanburg. But I did not do a launch. I mean, I've, I mean, I have been in a number, you know, all the book festivals had to cancel. And, and a lot of them did use the Zoom platform or something similar for the book festival. So I, I was at the Arkansas Book Festival. I was at, oh gosh, several others. The one in Bluffton, South Carolina. I was at, you know, three or four book festivals where I had been scheduled to be live, but I did my discussion, my panel that way. 
Bells for Eli discusses a certain condition the main character suffers from. How did you decide how much information to give and what information to leave out for readers? I did not grow up in the same town with my cousin. So he was in Plainfield, New Jersey when his accident happened. I was in South Carolina. So I was in no way an eyewitness, plus I was two years old. So I, I wouldn't have remembered anything even if I had been. So most of what I learned of my real life cousin's accident came to me secondhand long after my own childhood. Now I do remember visits when he and his family, his sisters and his parents would visit in South Carolina. And I can, you know, recall like a friend of mine once came in the backyard when my cousin and his sisters and my brother and I were outside playing and she kept asking him like what's wrong with you why you have that string in your nose why are you breathing through your throat why can't you hang upside down on the monkey bars like we do I watched him I remember watching him because it made me nervous she wasn't trying to harass him she didn't I mean she was a little kid herself eight years old maybe she just wanted to know but I could tell from his response that this happened to him a lot and he just he just left he just left all of us he he climbed up the ladder to the sliding board and he just sat by himself at the top and i realized you know that he was probably left by himself a lot of the time so I, I had those kinds of things you know from my memory but to get the medical stuff right you know to think about you know what happened to Eli in the book after he swallowed the lie and then deciding how much like you said to include I interviewed two gastroenterologists and one is older than I he's retired and he was practicing in the 60s so he could tell me exactly what an accident like that, what it caused, the scar tissue, uh, what the the medical problems would have been, the pain would have been, the way they treated it. So I learned all of that from him. And then the, the other one who's about my age added some information for me. And then I just, you know, I decided because the story is Delia's the protagonist. It's really her story. And so we're not ever in Eli's head. After Eli's accident, he's a little boy. I just sent him off to Boston Children's Hospital for six months. And then, you know, we don't really, we're not in the hospital with him. When he comes back and Delia sees him for the first time after his accident, that's when we pick up and understand what he's going through through her eyes and how their relationship begins to form. As you mentioned, a real central part of the book is Eli and Delia's relationship and their bond turning into something more for both of them. Talk with us and listeners of the podcast about when you realized the characters were heading in that direction. That's a really good question, Stacy, because I don't think I really thought it. I mean, I kind of knew, I knew that the accident would start the book. I knew what the penultimate chapter of the novel would be. I knew how old they would be, that they would be, you know, young people, 20, 21 years old by that time. But I I hadn't really thought through how I was going to handle the fact that they would become sexual beings and how that friendship between them might change as a result. So this is, you know, they, they have an, an incredible bond. I mean, to me, as awful as the accident is, it is a good example of how fate can take away with one hand and give with the other. Because the kind of trust and unconditional love that Delia and Eli have for each other is something that I don't think a lot of, not everybody gets to have. And these two people cannot really 
really be separated. So when they, there's a scene in the book when they are about 16 and they're coming home from a dance. Eli has taken Delia to a dance in Columbia, rather fancy. His, his grandmother is of landed aristocracy and Delia's parents are first generation college. Delia's blood uncle, her mother's brother, has married Eli's mother. Eli's mother has married below her station, but they were high school sweethearts and Jean was a hero in the war in World War II and they end up going off and eloping. So, but no social boundaries exist between Delia and Eli. So let me get back. So he's taken her to this dance, this really fancy cotillion, and he has arranged for a lot of boys to dance with her unbeknownst to her, though she suspects, because he's trying to distract her from going back with her boyfriend, Rad, who he believes is sexually manipulative. And he's right. And in this case, it takes one to know one. Eli's become quite a player himself with girls, but he wants to protect Delia. And so on the way home from the dance, he's had plenty to drink. He decides that he's going to pull the Camaro. He's pulled off at the pond and he's going to admit a sexual indiscretion that he had with a girl he did didn't love to Delia as another means of trying to deter her from going back to her boyfriend. He doesn't want to see her hurt. He doesn't want to see her end up pregnant. And so that's why he stops the car. But during that conversation, the cousins come to grips with their feelings for each other. And they, they talk about it. They feel their way through it, both literally and figuratively. And I was writing that one night and I just kept going. It was just kind of characters were just talking and through me. So I got up the next morning and I read what I'd written and I said, well, that's that. It was inevitable that they were going to have those feelings, that they do have those feelings and that they had to confront them. And so therefore it was inevitable for me to write it and to not do so would not be true to human life to who they are and just how it happened. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you have teaching experience and have taught writing for 33 years. How much of your teaching experience or parental experience played a part in how you explain the differences in children in your book? Oh, I think inherently an awful lot. I call, I mean, I don't even know that I could have written as well about these characters either in childhood or in adolescence when I was still in my 20s because I raised two daughters. I watched them grow through different stages and I and I taught teenagers for many, many, many years. And I it's it's kind of easier to be an older person and look at that behavior than to be able to kind of well, I mean I guess it's twofold. I can remember it in myself, but I but I can also maybe put a more mature look on it, you know, by thinking about how I handle situations or what I observe with the teenagers I taught. You did say that you spoke with gastroenterologists for this book, but was there anything else that you found interesting or surprising while you were researching for this story? I think I felt, I thought, you know, when I was writing that I would remember everything, all of the Snoopy posters and the Bobby Sherman lunchboxes and the music and, you know, all of the atmospheric things that I needed to create this, the time and the place of Bells for Eli in the 60s and 70s, but I didn't. And so I really enjoyed going back. I mean, I did a lot of research online, just going back and looking and remembering and going, oh my gosh, I forgot all about this or that or the other. 
it was kind of fun to remember, but one of my, I think most fulfilling, I, I write at night and I don't it really advise that for anybody. I think um, you should write in the morning and drink coffee. But for me, I write at night when it's dark and there are no distractions and my inner critic kind of goes to bed and the rest of me stays awake, so to speak. One night I needed to describe Eli's two favorite songs are Stairway to Heaven and A Whiter Shade of Pale. And I needed to describe Stairway to Heaven. He was he was describing it to Delia. He put it in the eight-track tape in his Camaro and they listened to it. And then he describes it musically to her. In order for me to do that, I listened to it on YouTube and I enjoyed it so much. And I had a glass of wine at the same time, I listened to it again, and I listened to it again, and I was just completely moved and taken back to those, you know, to those days. It was a lot of fun. I think it is wonderful when an author can use a piece of music from whatever era and put it within their book. I think it adds layers to the story. I also think that it heightens the moment between the characters in which the music is playing. What do you hope your readers take away after having read Bells for Eli? Well, I mentioned fate, but let, there's a quote I like a lot. I'm going to be paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me. But um, in a letter to his friend and nemesis, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote once that the purpose of a work of fiction is the lingering effects that the characters have with the reader once the book is finished. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting it exactly. And I think that's my hope for Bells for Eli, that there will be lingering effects that these characters might kind of live on and, you know, show us something about what it means to be human. And I, you know, mentioned that I think that the story well illustrates how fate goes, that it takes away with one hand and gives with the other, and how wounds of the human heart, as Eli suffers as a child, he suffers emotionally and he suffers physically, that wounds of the heart in childhood might never leave, but, and they may come, they may lead to some pretty dramatic results, but that when we examine Delia and Eli, we understand that love can ultimately triumph, even when pain and cruelty threaten to dominate. Susan, I'm sure that readers out there are eager to know if you're working on another book, and if so, what can you share with us about this upcoming story? I have written a second novel. It is now in my agent's hands. I sent it to her a while back. Then she looked at it, had an editor look at it, and sent it back to me for some revisions. And so now, I think a week or two ago, she has started sending it out. And all I can do is pray and keep every toe and every finger crossed that she'll find a home for the book and that it will be the right home for the book. It is a story, also Southern fiction, but it's nothing like Bells for Eli. It draws on my teaching experience and it's told from three points of view. An English teacher, not me, because this teacher is a lot funkier and nicer than I've ever been, and a very privileged high school senior boy who's got the world by the tail, so to speak, everything he could ever want. He's brilliant, probably gonna go to an Ivy League school. He and some of his comrades are quite arrogant. They know how smart they are, and they have been taking over classes you know, kind of taking over in the classroom for years. There comes a day 
that three of them are in this English teacher's AP English class, and she's teaching a play, not a difficult play, a one-act, pretty accessible play, and they start playing devil's advocate and one-upping each other, and pretty soon they've taken over and the teacher can't even talk over them. And she closes the book and says she's done for the day. As a result, she goes to the vice principal's office and she tells him she wants those boys punished. And nobody's ever really punished them before. And he tells her, well, I can send them home for several days. And she says, nope, I want them in in-school suspension. I want them down there with that part of society they've never seen or experienced. And while Sterling, the boy, is in in-school suspension, he meets an 11th grade girl named Hazel, who is also bright and capable, but does not, she doesn't make the kind of grades that Sterling makes because she's never had the opportunities or advantages and, and she lives in a motel. And so they form, you know, their story begins to take off and the teacher and Sterling's and Hazel's stories all become intertwined. Do you have any advice for writers who are looking to publish? Well, what I might lack in other areas, talent, call it whatever you want to, I make up for with tenacity. And I think that it is a very competitive world out there. You know it as an author, I know it as an author, and you just, you have to not give up. And you also have to sometimes think outside the box. I actually, I don't think this is the advice I should give, but as an example of thinking outside the box, my agent had on her website does not take new clients. So what is the point of, and she, you know, you, they say you start at the top and you work your way down. Well, there was no point in my writing a query letter because obviously it wasn't even going to get read. So I just got really bold and called on the telephone and just got lucky. I just acted like I was somebody and asked to speak to the my agent, Marley, and she came to the phone. And I thought she was gonna hang up on me. You know, once I asked her if she would read my manuscript, it was like a, late on a Friday afternoon. Then she just paused and she said, okay, I'll read. And it was just like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? Now I was really, really lucky. But the point of that is you gotta get creative <laughs> in these days when it comes to publishing and when it comes to, to finding an agent, I think very, very much so. And I also think that, that writers who got a manuscript and who are looking to get it published, they've got to put themselves around as many other authors who are published as they can. They need to go to as many conferences where agents are and who will read manuscripts as they can. So what I've learned is networking is probably the number one thing that will help. 100% solid advice. And speaking of networking, how can followers and listeners of The Writing Wall follow you on social media, Susan, and pick up their copy? of Bells for Eli. Well, my book is available in, in all of the formats, hardback, paperback, audiobook, and Kindle. And it should be available through any independent bookstore or any big box bookstore like Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. And there, I think there's a link on my website even if you wanted to buy it through that. My website is pretty simple. It's just my name, susanzorinda.com. And there's a lot of information there. And if you put my name into Facebook, it will come up there and it will come up in Instagram as well. 
Thank you so much, Susan, for being our Writer of the Week and for being our podcast guest this evening. Again, congratulations on your Ippy. I'm certainly looking forward to book two and finishing Bells of Eli for myself. Oh, it's been so wonderful to talk to you, Stacy, And I just love the connections that I get to make. That's one of the greatest gifts of having this book is the connections that I get to make with people in the book world like you. And thank you so much for having me. Listeners to the podcast can always visit the blog for our Writer of the Week's articles, and you can grab Susan's links there, or you can follow her on Instagram at Susan Beckham Zarenda and look her up on Facebook. You should really stop by her website too, SusanZarenda.com, because she has a great book trailer there for Bells for Eli. Also, a big thank you to our sponsor this season, Essie Smith. And you can visit her website, EssieSmithFL.com, to learn more about her books and her Get My Book Out There podcast with host Norrell Todd. When I come back, we're going to go local for a moment and then do the one thing everyone's been waiting for. So stick around. take a moment and advertise and shamelessly self-promo my second book that's due out later this year. One man, one deputy, and a town in the center of it all. Can he and other local law enforcement stop the devil? Or will he watch as he burns his town to the ground? Don't miss the debut cover and title reveal of book two across social media platforms for Dividing Ridge Books. Listeners can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Stick around because when I come back, we're going to do the one thing everyone's been waiting for. That's right. I'm going to get to your shameless self-promo Saturday shout outs. Welcome back, writing community. Let's do the one thing everyone's been waiting for, the shameless self-promo Saturday shout-outs. So here we go. We're going to kick it off with author B.D. West of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. You can check her website out, authorbdwest.com. Good news if you liked Winter of Wolves and Winter of Wolves the 7 by B.D. West, you can check out The Dark of October coming October 2021. This haunting new short story collection will be available to thrill and chill you this Halloween season. Are you brave enough to read The Dark of October? Well, are you? (laughs) Check out BD West and also check out her Teespring store for an awesome Winter of Wolves mug or heck, (laughs) t-shirt. Go for it, become one of the pack. Let's talk about Michael Amos Cody, songwriter and author of Twilight Reel and Gabriel's songbook. Both are novels and you can also find him on Twitter at drmacode. His books are available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback format and brought to you by the Pisgah Press. If you'd like to meet Michael Amos Cody, head out to City Lights in Silva, North Carolina, or check him out in Johnson City's forthcoming Atlas Books, which is hosting a pop-up event on Monday the 30th, during which time he'll be reading and playing some music. All you fellow indies out there may want to check out author at Katie Dyers on Twitter. Katie has a book out titled One Good Thing. It's available in Kindle format and paperback format. 
This is a tale of love and loss, sisterhood, and the seaside. One Good Thing is a multicultural second chance romance with a quirky cast of characters you're sure to fall in love with. I also just want to take a moment and say the connection Katie has with this book is really heartfelt. Her mom's family were Polish immigrants and she was born in a refugee camp after World War II, Katie said, of her mother. And she's rarely seen her culture represented at all, but she hopes that this will bring a little of that to romance and to the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your book with us, Katie. Check out Katie Dyers again on Twitter and her book, One Good Thing. Speaking of romance, I'm going to move on to another great indie romance author on Instagram and Twitter. Her name is Remy Marie. At Remy Marie Author is how you can find and follow her on those platforms. She has a new book coming out September the 2nd. Congratulations, Remy. It's titled, I'll Be There. It's an interracial friends to lovers college football romance, and you can also check out Remy's blog or support her work on Buy Me a Coffee. Next up is an indie author that is new to the indie writing community. His name is Joel Flanagan Greneman, and he is the author of the Servants of the Moon and Sun series. You can follow him on Twitter using the handle at Servants and. This book is a wicked twist on Sleeping Beauty. What if Maleficent were Aurora's mother? And what if she wasn't evil? Find out by visiting his website, servantsofthemoonandsun.com. Are you an indie author looking for honest reviews of your book and reviews that you don't have to pay for or spam people for? Well, check out bookroar.com and you can follow them on Twitter too using the handle at bookroar underscore tweets. They're here to help self-published authors like you to get reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. Their services are free to use, highly effective, and does not require you to upload a copy of your book. It works on a credit-based system where authors earn credits by reading books, and in turn, their books are offered out for review. Plus, if you sign up now, they're giving every new sign-up a bonus credit so that they can offer their book out for review straight away. We have some magic, some romance, and some mystery thrown into our Shameless Self Promo Saturday shout-outs today, and also some great ways to promote like with Book Roar. Give every one of these a look on social media. We hope you all have had a wonderful Saturday, enjoyed our Shameless Self Promo Saturday shout-outs, and our guest, author Susan Beckham Zarenda. Be sure to tune in on Writing Corner Wednesday, September the 1st at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as we talk to poet and author Maureen Sherbandi of North Carolina. Before her podcast airs, you can check out Maureen and all of her links on our blog Monday at 8 a.m. as she's our Writer of the Week. Another full episode of the Writing Wall podcast will take place September 11th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Because we all have a story, everyone here at the Writing Wall blog and podcast want to know yours. What is your story? Anytime I purchase a book, I always review. And if I really enjoy reading your work, rest assured, it may be shared here on this podcast with my listeners and followers. Of course, I will do so with permission from the author or authors first. Please like, follow, and share this information with other writers. And if you ever need a writer's lift, visit me on social media. Thank you all again for being here for this podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and learning more about the stories you weave.